everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Clear as Mud, where we talk to game developers from all walks of life about their personal and professional journeys. I'm your host, Graham Waldrop. As always, our show is presented by Mudstack, the only asset management and collaboration tool custom-built for game studios and digital artists. For more information, head over to mudstack.com. On today's episode, we welcome Brad Myers, lead character artist at Probably Monsters. Brad has been working in the industry since 2008 and has worked on multiple games in the Call of Duty franchise, including Vanguard, Black Ops, and Cold War. So anybody who's listened to this show knows that I love getting to the weeds. I love getting to the weeds of their guests and getting really technical about their process, even if it's about something I don't know much about or will never do. Uh, character modeling is one of those things, but I didn't stop Brad and I from having a really, really cool conversation about the ins and outs of it. And we go deep. You know, we talk about how like uh, ponytail interacts with the character it's attached to, how it's rigged and animated and how it has to respond to how the model is actually modeled and how do you actually make a ponytail for a character and things like that. So it's a really cool conversation. If you've ever been interested in character modeling or if you haven't been, you're going to learn something. It's a really cool conversation. Uh, Brad's at the top of his field, so you're going to get a lot out of this episode. And uh, yeah, here's Brad. Enjoy. With a project like like Call of Duty Vanguard, that and that one goes back to World War II, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in terms of your role as, as, as working on characters, right? Can yep. you take us through? what that's like to sort of go from like concept to, to modeling to rigging animation and bringing it sort of all, all the way home and yeah. you not, not necessarily have to go like, tell us about your pipeline and all the things that you can't talk oh, yeah. about, but just like from a, from a high level view, what, what, how do you guys uh, figure all that out? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good question. Um, Cause basically the way that it all starts out is it's, it's an idea, right. And they're, they're trying to, um, secure funding for and 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 it, it happens at such a high level in the very beginning that we don't even really know about it because they don't want us, us to get excited or get our hopes up or whatever um we had some other like sort of secret internal projects going on and those were really cool and i was actually in a position where i was um the only character artist on one of the teams so i i got to have quite a a lot of experience in, in a leadership type role in that case, which felt which felt great, you know. And, but whenever we secured uh, the deal on that next Call of Duty, uh, Call of Duty Vanguard, the second World World War II game that Sledgehammer would make, um, basically the way that started out was the thought that we're in a bit of there we're in a bit of a crunch in terms of trying to release a game with this every year cadence and they thought okay well we have a lot of um assets from the first uh world war ii game uh internally at sledgehammer and we have you know a lot of knowledge of what it means to make a game in that specific era uh maybe we can make this massive game faster um given all these circumstances uh the reality is on the character art team it's not really true uh because they wanted so many more characters. They wanted everything upgraded. Um, so essentially, what wound up happening is is we were working a lot harder uh, and, and sort of reaching out to all kinds of resources as much as possible. But we did deliver on that. But essentially, going back to the initial question, um, 
it starts out with an, with an idea. It sort of trickles down to all of us. And we start thinking about planning. How are we going to actually accomplish this? Um, character art team specifically, we get um, some concept. It might be literally starting out as the lead, just pulling um, inspiration type stuff off the internet mm -hmm. or film or whatever. Um, there's usually is, like a go ahead. Is the plot is sorry? Is the plot already written at this point, or like a basic overview of like who these people are, or is it sort of like everything is kind of being done? simultaneously yeah so <laughs> so my experience is working in games is the plot and the story and all that comes like they they mash it together at the very end in a frantic state uh <laughs> like like it's it's seriously like that that blows my mind uh having grown up playing games thinking there's some like master plan behind all right. this stuff mm -hmm. and the reality is a lot of times it's it's sort of like Oh, so we made all this stuff. We kind of need a story. Let's do that real quick. Yeah. Uh, and so I personally believe that's not the right way to do it. Um, however, it's it's so complex making a game. It there's a lot of like proving that you can actually make something at the quality level that they need. And in terms of like that perspective the storyline does not matter. You know, it's like, right. generally, generally it's like, can we make like a little snippet, uh, they call it a vertical slice uh, of the game. And, and just, this is just like maybe five, 10 minutes of playing the game, trying to shoot for highest quality. If you do, you're greenlit and you proceed with making the game. If you don't, um, they might start investigating other options. Right. So so I think that's a big reason for that. You know, it's interesting too because it seems like a lot of stories for games are retrofitted around the game's design. And it's amazing when those stories are pulled off really well too because it's like it doesn't it's not given the same amount of, of, of attention and development out of necessity, it seems like. That's true, yeah. And um, essentially they have like incredible talent working on this stuff that are really good at making something feel nice even given these circumstances. One game that I worked on was uh, quite a while back before uh, Vanguard was uh, was Rage. And that game it was, a lot of people don't know this, but that game was supposed to be like super, super long. Um, and they basically cut it off halfway through it uh, because they just ran out of time. And so like, but if you ever play that game, they allude to a lot of stuff happening. Um, like in the future in the game and then all of a sudden you're like credits roll you know <laughs> and yeah. so uh so yes things get cut off and and all kinds of stuff um and so the story is like oftentimes not um completely uh seen from the player right so you're making these characters without really having like an idea of what the story's going to be or who the characters are as characters maybe not yeah. necessarily how they're going to look but who they are as people yeah, totally. Like, so they they like to give us bios at some point, but sometimes they don't even they they literally will tell the person to do the character. There is a bio somewhere. Somebody thought about some things, and they don't even share it with the character artist. <laughs> like, they might forget or something. So, huh. uh, so yeah. So it's like it's not as like a well-oiled machine in that respect as you might think. Uh, originally, right. it almost took some digging for me to find out information about the characters. That's got to put you guys behind the eight ball, especially as a as a lead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then what the heck do you tell your team? Right? It's like, yes, yeah, right. this is a girl, this guy, they're from somewhere. Uh, yeah. 
make yeah. him badass, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. a lot of times it is like, okay, we have a we have a concept that the concept team put a lot of love into, and and, and like I said, initially it is like just inspiration stuff, you know, getting right. started out. But then usually at some point we'll have like a very specific concept. Um, sometimes it's like kind of fuzzy and you don't know what some things are. You're like, I'm pretty sure that's a strap, but I can't really tell, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is It is like, okay, well, here's your concept. Just try to make it one-to-one with that or fill in the blanks of things that you don't see. Um, right. So, I mean, I will say that like in terms of like for what we do as character artists, it's not like the most important thing in the world um, because the the fact of the matter is is we need to we need to create this character which essentially is a statue right we're not animating it and mm-hmm. but we do have to make sure that we use topology with it that um that makes it very friendly for animation um so if we have all the bells and whistles and it, and it animates it's kind of like all right well the character is happening a lot in the animation and maybe the voice acting and and facial stuff right. um, we didn't even we didn't even really work on heads a lot of the time um it was uh we had we had a guy that like mostly all he did was heads and it's a very technical role at least in uh at, at sledgehammer with with call of duty stuff it, it was call of duty stuff in general it's we we would hire like actual actors um and we'd have like a lineup we'd be like okay this is our first choice for the actor's head this is our second choice. This other guy. This is our third choice. And so there'd be like five or six options uh, because oftentimes those actors would cancel or not show up or something. And uh, and then and then essentially um, once they had them and they scanned their heads, then they um, it was like very technical in terms of like cleaning it up and and getting the textures and stuff in. So like even still like it's like when we're making this body, we might not really know what the head's gonna be. Right. You know? <laughs> Have you ever been in a scenario where like whole body is scanned and not just the face or is that, are we not at that point yet? Yeah. So we try to, I mean, we try to lever stuff as, as much as possible. So we will scan bodies. We actually had, um, we do have, uh, we have a male and female mannequin that is set up in the exact T pose of the character meshes. And what we do is we, we buy clothes from like army surplus stores and stuff. And then mm-hmm. we we literally like dress them up and uh, and then like have this super expensive uh, scanning machine. It's like two hundred grand for this machine. It's like weighs a thousand pounds or something, you know. Wow. And it's like it, yeah, and it's it's not that heavy, but it's it's very heavy. Uh, and um, and yeah, so then it's like on this like this turntable essentially. It's you know it's life size, and um, and we just uh, rotate it and scan it, and then we get it in. There is a there is some some skill to that it's it's it takes some doing uh figuring out exactly how that works because like a very reflective surface doesn't scan well um because it the way that the lasers bounce so like we found that if you put powder on it for example it will not it'll scan better um some areas get a little crunchy and you might want to scan again or you might have there's like these little dots that you got to put on there so that it can see all the points in space Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a lot to it, but it is very technical, and we would do that whenever possible. We would we would buy clothes and stuff. Um, we had we have like a, a male and female uh, base mesh 
um, that we would use for the bodies. There's, there's really only two body types. And then if we wanted them to have like, make them look more beefy and strong or something, we just kind of like add a little more size or whatever. It wasn't, it wasn't anything too, uh, too crazy in terms of like, you know, it's a realistic game. So people, even somebody that is like way bigger than somebody else from, from reality sake, right. uh, it's like, there's really not that big of a difference in measurement, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And oftentimes they they had full clothes on that you, that stuff was covered up anyway. Um, so so a lot of times you know the the, the body was essentially taken care of. Uh, we have the head scanned, and what what we were doing is um, scanning clothes when we can or making them from scratch, um, and uh, and just trying to to make stuff as fast as possible. A lot of reuse stuff. So like if we had a pack from somewhere that was scanned previously. And it could be from something that we scanned from the first World War II game. Yeah. And we're like, okay, we can, we can do better with this now. We can make it look cooler and, and more high res. Um, so then we would actually just use that scan and, and remake it from there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that totally makes sense with how tight y'all's um, release frame is, right? I mean, you got to go as fast as, as humanly possible. Yeah, yeah. So any way we can do that and still... Um, create stuff at a high quality level we would um there's there's this like general sense of uh uh less is more and and um and quality over quantity um because because really like we can we can create a few things and make it really high quality and then figure out ways to intelligently reuse that where you might not notice that it's being reused so much um, mm -hmm. and especially on like army guys, right? Like there's like a lot of them have these like certain kinds of packs and things, um, that, that, you know, what one person has and the other person just has in a different spot essentially, you know? Yeah. And I know it's funny too. Like a lot of people over the years have brought up like, um, NPCs you kill in a game like a call of duty. Mm -hmm. Um, it's like, Oh, that, you know, they all look the same or there's like three different types of, <laughs> yeah. uh, of, of guys that you can, that you take out sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Once again, right. I mean, it comes down to a necessity thing and how many character models can you actually pump out? Yeah. Yeah. That's actually an interesting segue because, um, when, when we were making Vanguard, uh, so, so essentially there's a, there's a lead that I had above me and he was, uh, he had a ton of experience He's really, really good at what he does. And one thing that was really cool about working with him is, is he had been there for a while and um, he had like this, this huge, huge uh, knowledge base of like what we had in, in our various like files and folders. So, like he just kind of like knew where to find stuff, right? Because a lot of what we were doing was reusing stuff, um, which was super, super helpful. But he had the idea that we would, uh, from experience, that we would work on the enemies first, uh, like the general enemies, because uh, what oftentimes happens when working on a game is you get better as you get further into production. Mm -hmm. And so uh, these enemies that you see from a distance on screen, generally speaking, well, if they're not as cool looking as the main cast of players, that's better, right? Right. Um, Those are disposable. Then, yeah. 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 So, so sometimes I think, I think if, you, if you are like planning things the best way possible – um, those, those enemies that you see up close, uh, when they're killed or whatever, maybe you're just inspecting them or something. Mm -hmm. Um, they, they tend to not be quite as good as, as 
some of the player models. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's that's generally the reason. Because like you said, it's just like you have a limited amount of time, especially on the schedule that we had. Um, so it's just about, again, trying trying to produce the best thing, reasonably so, as fast as possible. Right. And when you're, when you're like, um, you're topologizing these meshes, mm-hmm. um, and you say you had like sort of a, a female and a male body already kind of to, to work off of, Mm-hmm. What are what are kind of the steps in terms of of topology? Do you do you take those meshes and and kind of beat them up a little bit at first in terms of the topology? Or are you trying to just always keep it as low right. poly as possible um, throughout yeah. the creation process? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Uh, so essentially, it's better to definitely make them more high res uh, than what you probably will ship with because it's a lot easier to uh, downsize than to upsize. You can, I mean, realistically, like we would have, uh, so we have LODs in the game, you know, level of details where right. there's like the highest level and then, and then a low level that's like extremely chunky. Um, and it, so that's just how many polygons there are. So level zero is the most polygons possible. And that's what we're authoring our characters as is level zero. Um, Level zero is only seen in the character select screen. Once you start playing the game, you're already level t- level one. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. like, it's like there's a lot of like auto LODing stuff that takes place that we're not actually. There's there's some specific situations where we would manually uh, LOD characters. Like one thing that we would do was uh, we would do that on um, on corpses because of the fact that there'd be like potentially so many of them uh, and you see them at a distance that made sense. But um, for the most part, we, we use an LO, auto LOD system. So mostly what we're doing is just being reasonable. We had like certain guidelines for the polygon count that we would aim for. And, and we would just try to make it look really cool. If something looked a little bit like, when it comes to, to polygons um, and, and being efficient there, the biggest thing that you'll start to notice is potentially stretching in the textures where things look a little bit muddy or weird. Um, due to low topology, so like if like a common situation would be uh, an area uh, in like around a shoulder um, where things could deform a lot and stretch a lot, um, mm-hmm. and then the other uh, situation is is just looking at the silhouette. So like if the character is moving around, you don't want to see like this knee that bends and then has like a like a hard angle that looks like a box, right? Right. So so we want to we want to give. Um, Topology where we need it for deformation, uh, and just and just see it in these different poses and, and not looking boxy, looking fluid and organic, um, and and that's pretty much the name of the game. Like just being reasonable. I, I don't remember the exact numbers for what we had. There's there's a guideline sheet, but there might have been something like um, it might have been like max 120,000 for the body area or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, but that was that was also like I said, it was kind of give or take because there are some characters uh, like I worked on this character uh, named Gustavo, who was a guy in a ghillie suit, and he had just tons and tons of these um, like uh, those I don't know what they call them like those little like camo strips. Yeah. Um, so it was like in order for that to look smooth with all those strips, it's like yeah, you, you got to use a lot of polygons. So the design itself can sometimes dictate how many you use right what about like hair i feel like hair over the years um continues to look better and better 
particularly yeah. these, these these really big games like the ones you work on. Um, and but also I know like everybody in World War II is wearing helmets and stuff. But you know, yeah. having played the game, I know there's still plenty of times when you know, especially in the cutscenes and stuff, when people you know you see the hair. But I mean, it's incredibly. Which I know also has a lot to do with the animation, but I'm sure that, you know, is set up with what you guys do before mm-hmm. it gets to that point. So I'd, I'd love to hear about just hair, working with hair and character yeah. models. Hair, hair is like a very unique beast in video games. Um, it, it is a big challenge because the fact that the fact is, is like if you don't go with hair cards and you go with splines, it's, it's just a worlds apart more expensive. Now those things are changing. Uh, actually, like we're we're Unreal now supports hair splines, and I think hair cards will be done away with in the near future. Um, I'm already working on stuff uh, where I have characters in Unreal uh, leveraging that tech. Um, so pers- me personally, I haven't done a lot of hair card type stuff on characters. Uh, I'm aware of the 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 workflow for it, um, and I have done some things. But there's sort of like what happens with hair is there's there's usually like specialists now that are just like hair card specialists and all they do is work on hair. Uh, and a lot of times what we do is we don't even have specialists in studio. We'll we'll outsource that stuff. So there's like outsource mm-hmm. studios and all they do is mm-hmm. hair, you know. And right. so uh, it's also very uh, interdependent on the engine itself, the way that the engine renders it. So there's there's some tricks involved in sort of. Um, getting it to look right and work in any given engine. It's not going to be the same from one engine to the next. Uh, and I did actually have some hand at uh, helping with the way that the the hair uh, ambient occlusion worked on this UV map too um, for Call of Duty. And so, uh, so yeah, so it's like the, it becomes very technical working on hair. Um, it is something that I didn't personally do on Call of Duty. Um, we had a guy, the, the head specialist I mentioned previously, he, um, he basically took whatever outsourcing gave us and then made it work with the heads. Um, so that was very involved. And, uh, and that was, that was kind of like what we did. So I saw the hair uh, when I was working. So when we were exporting characters, oftentimes, to the game. Oftentimes we would have to, you know, fit helmets and things on them. And then, so we would be exporting with the hair or without the hair, depending on certain headgear and stuff. So I had to deal with a little bit here and there. I had to move some stuff around sometimes to make it look better. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the whole, the whole thing with hair. It's just, it's just very, very technical, very, uh, specific, uh, to the engine and what you're trying to do. And and hopefully they will do away with the cards and just start using grooming systems um, like uh, like you use with XGen. So take me through like a, a card versus a spline and in, in terms of the benefits of that. Yeah, of, so of like going a, to spline. Yeah, so like essentially like a hair card is is like a plane with like a few uh, because it has to bend. It's going to have subdivisions uh, vertically. So that it can actually like bend um, around as you would need, but yeah. it doesn't. It doesn't normally, unless it's like a dreadlock or something. It doesn't really have to be like a cylinder. It's, it's right. usually just flat. And so, is it similar you, to like how people have used to do trees, kind of thing, yeah. or like the leaves in the trees sort of deal? Yes. yes yeah. Very, okay. Very much. Yeah. Gotcha. And so and so you have you have this card. You have alpha, so that it's like a cutout uh, with the actual like individual strands just 
they're only visible because of the alpha uh, on the card. Right. And so, um, but we, we bake those so that we get really good results. And generally, the way that those are baked is you will use a, a spline system, which actually creates geo hair, and then you bake it onto strips. So it's all a bunch of trickery uh, to get these these uh, these cards to look like the spline systems, which are like, if you know how to do it, those things are like pretty much perfect. Yeah. Um, and so it's like there's there's a layering system, like in terms of like the workflow. The best way to do it is to like layer on like all these like base style. You have different styles of hair on cards, and so there's like a base style that's like more dense and more full. And then you have like uh, a second layer, major layer, where it's like a little more like see through, and you might have some variations there to use. And you you just do it one by one and manipulate them until you get them in the right sp spots. And then you have like flyaway hairs, which are like these little tiny hairs that you can just see like kind of because any. Anytime you look at a hairstyle in real life, you always have like individual hairs that are kind of like off in weird places. Mm -hmm. um, so you want to like simulate that as well. And, and, and it's really just like a lot of like looking at reference and, and understanding how this works and then trying to um, use these cards. Um, you, you'll have like basically like a, a little like set of cards that you've, that you've baked from real splines uh, in a, an intelligent way. And then you are just using those to build the hairstyle that you need on the given head that comes in bald, which, which is also a big challenge because um, seeing a, a bald head uh, and trying to get the hair on there is a little bit intimidating. It's, it's, it's like hard to just establish where the hairline really is going to be. Right, uh, yeah, nothing really to work off of at that point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, the people that do it, they're, they're great at it. And, and I've seen, you know, we've all seen good hair and bad hair. Um, yeah. But like... Uh, they're definitely getting better at it, but if you if we really want the best, it's going to be spline based, and that's going to be very similar to what they use in film. The thing that sort of blows my mind now is like if there's a character running around with a ponytail mm -hmm. in, a, in a game, and like making sure that ponytail is moving, like especially like in a Call of Duty game, mm -hmm. right? It was so fast paced, particularly the multiplayer, you're running around everywhere all the time. Yeah, um, making sure that that hair is bouncing the exact right way. Yeah. In response yeah. to how the character is animated. I mean, is there like, mm -hmm. uh, I hate to <laughs> spend like 30 minutes talking about air, but I just think it's fascinating the advancements yeah. that have happened. But like when you got like the character running and then you got the hairs, there's like two separate sort of systems working together. Yeah, that's that's true. So essentially, like, there's like there's sort of like two ways to uh, to skin something for rigging purposes. You have your your one to one skins, which are generally most most objects are um, are going to be one to one. So you say, okay, I want you know the forearm to to follow the the forearm bone uh, up until the point where it gets sort of to the to the midsection where you know where the crease of the bicep is, and then it's sort of getting blended into the upper bone by the bicep, um, so that it can deform properly. Now those are like more one-to-one -one blends uh, in skinning. Then you have things that are dynamic, and you can make them fully dynamic. Uh, so, like if you want to make things look more realistic, like with your little packs and stuff on the hips, those are probably going to be dynamic, and they are attached to points on the model so you can have like your your water jug that's sort of flopping around when you run and mm -hmm. they can control like how stiff those dynamics play um one of the really tricky cases is anytime you have um you have like a uh, like a long cape or something or trench coat um 
that's going to be like a mix of the like one-to-one skinning and the dynamics because it needs to be flapping around when you're running, but things can get crazy real fast with it <laughs> because it can like flip inside out and do crazy things. Uh, you've probably seen that also. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's kind of like a blend of those two things. Some things have are fully dynamic. I imagine in the case of like a uh, um, uh, ponytail, you'd probably just like right around wherever that hairband is, just leave the rest of it fully dynamic and, and make it sort of stiff with the way that mm-hmm. it's bouncing around. Um, but and, and again, there's like different technical things uh, per engine. So um, whether or not they have more control than that, um, it would really depend on the engine. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Cool. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for indulging my yeah, interest yeah, in no hair problem. and games. Um, no problem. So, do you guys start texturing before rigging and animation is done, or is, um, when does that process start? Yeah, ideally, we would always texture before rigging and animation. Mm-hmm. There has been a few cases where we we're in a bit of a uh, a crunch with time. Um, normally, like in those situations when we're like really strapped for time. It's because there's been some like uh, you know high level um, back and forth in terms of like what they want to do with the design of something. We we had this um, one such case specifically with Call of Duty and Vanguard. We had for this multiplayer uh, this thing called I think they called it MonsterVerse, which was essentially like we had some of the main characters sort of dressed up as. Like one was a Godzilla, one was uh, King Kong, and one was uh, the lizard guy. I don't know what his name is. <laughs> and so, like, uh, we had like we had our own versions of concepts for those, and they just were very, very um, undecided on the concept side of it. And so, we can't work on it until they're like, okay, let's go with this concept. And they just kept on like delaying it and delaying it. And we knew that there was like very hard. Um, deadlines in terms of like when this could actually be released because it was like supposed to be for one of these season passes, mm-hmm. and um, and so eventually they're like, okay, you got this now. You just like make it, and and then but then like literally, if we made it in the normal amount of time that we would make it, that would give rigging and animation zero time. Uh, so there was like a bit of a like, okay, we'll get this in the best state we possibly can, hand it off to you to work on it. There is gonna uh, inevitably be some back and forth. Like you can't, you can never just hand something off and it's perfect because you might just notice like, oh wait, there's like something wrong with the the UVs here and the textures are warped uh, when it's being animated um, and like I need to like fix that now and it, it was like an obvious mistake but I just didn't see it because we were like crunching trying to get it done um, stuff like that. So it, that that does happen. Um, but most of the time, actually, it was the opposite, which which is ideal for us as character artists, because we had um, a big debt in rigging and skinning throughout mm-hmm. most of the project. And so we actually had all these characters done, and they just weren't even picked up yet from rigging and skinning um, when we were working on the single player stuff. So that's cool for us, because if we come back to it and we have to mess with it, we're not stepping on anybody's toes and being like, oh, whoa, whoa, let, uh, you're going to have to redo some of your work now because we got to fix something, you know? Um, yeah. So it, it, I prefer that, uh, but there are times um, in game development where it's just totally unavoidable that you have to, like, sort of work on things at the same time, and it's, it's, it gets kind of hairy sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that can definitely get messy. Mm-hmm. So when you guys are texturing stuff, 
what are some some techniques, some uh, methodologies you guys use? So texturing is is so much based on the style of art you're going for. Now we uh, did everything with in consideration for PBR rendering, which is physically based rendering. Right. Uh, everybody talks about that now. It's it's sort of like a, a buzzword, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot of people know what it is <laughs> exactly, you know, because uh, when it comes down to it, uh, I've worked with plenty of artists, you know, oh yeah, I know what PBR is, I know what it is, and uh, and they're doing it wrong because essentially it is like very specific and non-intuitive in some cases. Um, like an example of that is if you're working on something metal, uh, there's two workflows. There's a, a spec gloss workflow, is what we, which that's what we used on um, Call of Duty. Uh, there's also a metalness and roughness workflow, and that's generally what's used in any engine, um, anybody who's using the Unreal Engine. Uh, there's pluses and minuses to both. We chose the uh, spec gloss, which I think is better for a number of reasons. Um, not quite as optimized as the, the metalness, roughness. But anyways, uh, those details aside, a lot of consideration is taking place just in what workflow you're using. Is it uh, with a PBR workflow? And then once you've established that, um, then it's like uh, in a realistic game, because you, you don't have to be realistic to use a PBR workflow. Right. Um, but like uh, for us, um, using that, we we kind of broke things down. Now we use Substance Painter uh, specifically for our texturing. And because a lot of the stuff was scanned and we we're reusing a lot of things, um, on this particular project, we spent most of our time in Substance Painter. So that's, that's essentially Substance Painter is just like a somewhat procedural type um, painting, texturing, authoring tool. And it um, you can just essentially use all kinds of um, layers and just build things up. So essentially like what I would be doing is is I'd be thinking about like the construction of something um, in great detail, and I'd be really like analyzing something in great detail. Now, for example, like if I was talking about just the basic shirt, um, I'm gonna start out with just thinking, okay, what color is it? What how how shiny is it? Uh, what specular value does it have? Um, like. Is there is there value to it? Is there are there like little dots in it and stuff? So you create some noise. So you do like another layer. So you have like your base layer, which is like real base values, and then you have another layer, and then you'll like set up like maybe there's some noisy detail, maybe there's a pattern. So then you'll actually like use a texture that's tiling for that pattern, mm-hmm. and then um, and then so you, then you work on that. There's usually cloudiness. It's not like s- solid color or anything. We always avoid adding lighting to anything in this workflow because that'll actually break it from reality. Uh, it can make it look nicer in some cases. We would actually uh, intentionally bake some some darkness into certain areas where like things were always overlapping. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, we wouldn't do much lighting type stuff uh, baked into our textures. Um, and then, and then you know, we're leveraging our bakes, which which you know the the normals and the cat the curvature and all those things. They help drive some of these like automated things. Like you can you can uh, add a layer that's sort of like dirt and crevices, for example. And then it kind of looks at like the curvature of certain things with the normal maps and stuff. It identifies things, and then usually the 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 base um, 
filters that you use to like identify certain areas to help speed things up. Because if I was painting every little tiny crack by hand, it takes ages. But yeah. if you can do somehow procedurally, you save so much time. And then maybe I'm just going to like multiply some alpha on top of it that breaks up those edges so it's not perfect in every little crease. And then maybe I'm going to like at the very end, like paint some hand authored strokes with grunge brushes and stuff that I have. And that's, I mean, that's generally how it is. It's like you have like your base stuff and then just like the base base values for things like the shirts base values and then you're starting to like just add to that complexity and uh in the very end you're generally doing things like um adding like dirt and wear and things like that where it's like right. okay if if this is a belt and he's always got these um these packs on the side maybe there's like the packs are always rubbing on the belt and it's starting to wear it down and so it looks like it's like real deep red and then it's real light colored where these packs have been rubbing. And we're, we're doing stuff with that level of detail where, you know, I'm thinking about like blood spatter and things like that that could happen because he's like shooting some gun or, um, so a lot of the love went into the textures and, and really like as long as video games have been around, that's where all the magic happens is in the textures. Yeah. And I think too, one thing you're, you're talking about that I really like about where textures are now is just sort of, it's like a smorgasbord, right? There's some hand painted stuff, they're scanning, um, yeah. You know, and and how you incorporate that all into all the different maps you make, I, I think is really really cool. Because you know, when I was uh, at school, like it was a lot of it was a lot of hand painted stuff. Like we were hand painting mm -hmm. textures, everything's tileable um, to the point where it was like there really wasn't really we weren't really using at least I wasn't using ZBrush, um, yeah, and things like that. So yeah, I mean um, we'll, we'll use we'll even use ZBrush for things that people usually don't think you would use ZBrush for, like yeah. uh, like hard surface stuff. Because there is some level of deformation happening. Like, not every edge on a gun is going to be perfect. You know, right. some of them are going to be scruffed up. And it's, it's that micro detail that really sells it a lot of times, believe it or not. Yeah. And it just gives it, like, an, like you're talking about with the belt and everything, right? It just gives it that extra sort of lived in, real, real world feel. And it, yeah. uh, the crazy thing to me is just looking at, you know, Call of Duty games from, uh, you know, like the original Modern Warfare to where you guys are now uh it's incredible the the level of visual fidelity how it's just completely transformed um we were talking yeah. to uh sean bell who uh is art director on black ops mm, uh or okay. one of the art directors on black ops series um a few a couple weeks ago and he was talking about how photogametry has just completely changed the way that that textures are done yeah, yeah. Actually, that's, that's interesting that he was talking about that because, so there, there's two methods to scanning something. You can use photogrammetry, or I'm probably saying that wrong, honestly, but but it's uh, but it's essentially like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a tough one. Um, yeah, it is. But but you can uh, you can you can use that method, and and that will capture color detail. So that helps a lot with texturing. However, there's usually um, a a kind of like reduced value in terms of uh or quality level in terms of the the scan that you get from that at least mm. with the with the rigs that we had so oftentimes what we would do is we would use our like um our really high tech uh scanner that that i mentioned previously and that would literally just give us a a super high resolution uh 3d scan much greater than photogrammetry what you got there um so but that was the trade-off, right? So, and also, we couldn't actually scan things properly with our photogrammetry rig 
because um, if they were too large. So like a, a full outfit, we couldn't really get it uh, scanned properly. Um, but it, this this giant uh, ATOS uh, scanner, I think it was called, um, that one, it could do like huge stuff. Uh, so that was like kind of like, at least with our systems, the, the pluses and minuses. Um, and so essentially like the difference was, is like if we if we use that ATOS scanner, the, the really high resolution one that did not have color, color in it, we mm -hmm. could get detail that was like somehow like you get like a seam uh, on the end. You you capture the stitches for the most part, and you could actually kind of go around the seam like to the point where like you know on shoes you have like wherever you have seams there's like almost like layering of right. some material <laughs> like you, you could see some of that. So yeah. it was it was insanity. Like but um but so that's why that was another reason why we spent a lot of time texturing things because we actually didn't have any uh, color data whenever mm -hmm. we were texturing. But it, in a way, it's kind of cool because like whenever I'm texturing something, um, I'm considering every single layer that I use, what is going to be the gloss and spec and these other, these other values besides color. And so I can get it like exact if I'm hand authoring things mm -hmm. like you know, like every little dot on there, maybe that's like, maybe I decide that these dots have like a different value for gloss uh, while I'm making it so I can do that. If I have something that's scanned with color data, um, it's pretty hard to pinpoint those kinds of things. Uh, not yeah. gonna say you can't, but it's, it's, it's a different uh, thing entirely. Is it tough not really thinking about lighting when you're doing that stuff? Um, or is it just easy to kind of take what you guys have done uh, and then the, you know, the environment artist or the lighting team is able to sort of make what you guys uh, have created work. Yeah. So in terms of like the more, the more you work on stuff, um, the, the better you get at that. It, it can be really tricky at first. Now in Substance Painter specifically where we did all our texture authoring, um, we would use a very specific HDRI map that, that didn't have like very much color in it. And then we would always um, turn on the background and make sure it's not blurred. So you get like a sense of like how, the environment is reacting to the texturing you're doing, which is insanely important when doing texturing. Like it doesn't seem like it would be, but trust me, like if you if you try to texture without having these different things uh, sort of set up, it, it's mm -hmm. like you don't have like a sense of um, like understanding of the color value until you start seeing it uh, in this like sort of like neutralized uh, state, you know. Um, Kind of an example I can give you just from our, an artistic standpoint is if you're painting something at night, essentially everything is going to be kind of blue. And then yeah. if you wanted to paint something red on an object in a blue lit place, um, it's actually not going to be red. If you painted it red, it'd be like crazy hot, like un totally unrealistic. What it really is, is a very desaturated blue. So if you paint something super desaturated in a fully blue lit room, it looks to your eyes red. And so that's just like how your eyes sort of perceive the world. And what you want is you want some ability to perceive your textures in a proper environment. So we had a certain setup that we would use that would um, be very similar to what we got in, in the game, game engine. It's not one-to-one, -one, like especially when it came to specular values, mm -hmm. but it was pretty close. And the more you practiced at it, the better you could guess what it's going to look like in the game. And then and then, so then at the very end, you get in the game, you're like, oh, I need to change this, this, and that. Go ahead and change it. Oh, I need to change this, this, and that. So there's a little bit back and forth, but for the most part, you can do all the texturing um, 
straight up in that that uh, substance painter. And um, and the cool thing also about working in substance painters, I'm, I just have all these different fill layers with different values. So if I'm like, okay, I need to change that gold color is all wrong, then I can just like change the gold color uh, uniformly on everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And for like on the rigging and animation side, uh, I know you say you don't really touch that, but are you in contact with those guys, um, to letting them know what's going on with these characters, giving them sneak peeks of iterations, things like that? Yeah, we probably didn't do the best job um, communicating with them like ahead of time in terms of like what we were doing. Like our team didn't actually communicate with, with a lot of the other teams in terms of like what was coming online until it was like already almost done. Um, our, our lead like mostly did a lot of the communication to the higher ups about things like that. Um, and then that didn't really get filtered down to like animation and rigging so much. Um, mm -hmm. but w to be fair, like, like I said, during most of production, uh, rigging had their hands full and they like weren't even working on the stuff that we were, that was coming online anyway. Um, right. so it, it wasn't super imperative for us. Um, but then there is definitely a, a, a big something that is very important is whenever we would um, hand off the the characters to rigging and skinning um, that we actually um, so what we did is we, we eventually set up like this a few meetings um, it used to be like actually three meetings a week I think at one point um, and I wasn't initially on this team but then I eventually got put onto it and essentially what it was it was just it was just like a review of the rigging and skinning. And so we would sit in there and watch the characters run around and go through certain poses and stuff and just make sure everything was uh, looking correct. And when, when they don't know the characters as intimately as we do, um, it's easy for them to miss stuff. And so like we're able to like give them feedback so that they can make it look as good as possible. Um, so that part is like super important, like kind of um, giving feedback in that direction. Um, mm -hmm. But even still, things happen so fast that uh, they can get entirely missed. Like there's this one character that I worked on that was like one of the main, um, the main uh, character NPCs. And he was communicating with like you as the main player. And then I just see like his strap, like popping through his chest, <laughs> like during the, during the conversation. I'm like, yeah. God damn it, man. Like this is, the, <laughs> you could have got this so easy. I had no idea this was happening, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, do you ever have to like uh, take something back, um, like if a model doesn't work with a rig or something like that, or or um, yeah, 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 for for sure. Like, yeah. It's it's mostly like a design issue. Um, whereas like we we have a we have a concept and the guy has a knife and it's on his waistband and you're like oh yeah that's cool it's like in a it's kind of standing out because usually like you're, you're thinking about things from a design perspective like you know small medium large shapes and that things sort of flow across the character and it's not just all like willy-nilly happening there it's all like well thought out um so you're like oh yeah that's a that's a cool place that's unique for that like big gnarly knife um and then you see it animated and you're like oh that's just like going right into his junk like <laughs> like as soon as he as soon as he like crouches it's just like intersecting <laughs> with his legs and stuff you right. know and so you're yeah. like okay well clearly that's not going to work there's not a lot you can do there because uh it's gonna it has to attach to that point and he has to be in these extreme poses so you can't bend a knife it's solid object right. so really it's just like okay we're just gonna we're just gonna scoot it over to the side a little bit and everything will be fine and so there's there's stuff like that all the time essentially yeah so what's what's the typical turnaround time for a for a model then from like 
the concept to when you guys are, are, are done with it? With a lot of the enemies, it was a lot faster. Well, it was just, honestly, it was a little bit slower in the beginning because we were just sort of figuring out these pipelines in the beginning uh, and sort of getting a, a better understanding where everything lives. But, um, but like, it, it's so dependent on... Well, so, sometimes we would put more love into certain characters because we knew they were really important. But a lot of it really just is, is all about um, how much unique stuff is going to be on that character to make it look like we want it to look in the concept. Um, like there's some characters that I worked on that were, um, there's like literally nothing on them that was reuse. And so if that's the case, then it's going to take way longer than a character that is like 70% reuse. Right. Um, so so it, it really comes down to that. Now, if you're doing something that's mostly reuse, um, I don't know, it might take like, a month, maybe six weeks. If you're doing something that is like incredibly, like just totally unique like that, it could take upwards of three months um, for a character artist to make. And in granted, like if you're a character artist and you're not the one who says, yes, this is good. No, it's not good. It's always going to take a lot longer for you, no matter how good you are, because they can always just be like, no, I don't like it. Change this, this and that, you know? And so it's, it's, it's much harder uh, the further down uh, leadership you are um, to, to sort of like get it, get the okay on it. Um, so so that, that is a little bit like of, of an unfair advantage, like the higher up you are. But, um, but yeah, so like iteration is a big thing in terms of like how long stuff takes as well. Yeah, yeah. So stepping away from, from that side of your career, take us through the, the mentor coalition Thing that you're a part of what's that like oh yeah yeah so for me honestly that's it's kind of like this uh it's it's basically um josh lynch is the founder of that and his wife uh helps him a lot with that um so it's the two of them really and uh i actually knew josh uh when i went to college with him at a uh, university of advancing technology uh back a long time ago i think it was like 2006 or something uh 2005 maybe um, and so he, Josh sort of made a big name for himself, um, working in substance designer uh, as a material artist. And what was happening is, is he was, um, he, it's a very technical skill set to work in substance designer. Um, and it was also very new at the time that he picked it up and there weren't a lot of people that knew how to use it. So what, what wound up happening is, is people would all the time contact him, uh, for help, uh, learning how to do it. And so eventually he was like, okay, this, this mentorship thing, I, like, I'm not going to spend all my time. I have limited time. I'm not going to spend all my time for nothing. Um, but I do want to help people. So, so he basically was started doing mentoring himself, uh, and qu- quickly became overwhelmed and decided that he wanted to make, um, an actual like website where people could go to for, mentorships and maybe it's just not, maybe it's not just in substance design or maybe it's like across the board. And so he did that. It was a huge, huge undertaking. And, um, and so he had a bunch of, uh, mentors in various areas that, um, that people would, you know, they'd use the website and, and decide like he had like a system for how much time, um, like different packages for how much time you get with your, uh, your mentor. And, um, and, and honestly, it's not it's not the cheapest thing in the world, but it's in my opinion like well worth it, um, just because I know how hard it is to sometimes 
uh, figure out this stuff that like the, the time saving, it's all about saving time in the end, in my opinion, um, because your time is, is limited in terms of like learning this stuff. Um, it's just, there's just so much to it. So, so if you can speed that up, I think it's worth it. Um, but there is a lot of this information is available, um, on the internet if you're willing to dig around for it. Um, but yeah, so that's essentially what it is. It's just, it's just literally, uh, uh, a, a place, and, and this is becoming more and more popular. By the way, there's there's other there's other companies that have uh, similar type um, plans set up for people to get um, professional mentors. I actually joined Josh uh, when he was getting like a huge influx of demand for character artists to be mentors, and so um, he's like, hey, you know, we have this huge demand for characters, character artists. We can't keep up with it. It's like the second. You know, somebody becomes available, they're getting booked. Um, so can you, uh, would you be willing to do it? And I was like, yeah, you know, yeah, sure. I, I give it, give it a shot. And so I've been doing it for, I think it's been like a little over a year, maybe, I don't know, maybe even longer than that. But, um, but it's been going really well. I actually just, I just leave one slot open for this mentorship um, per month. And sometimes it gets filled, sometimes it doesn't. And I'm, I'm cool either way. Cause like, honestly, like I just, this isn't so much for me. Like some people, maybe it's a side hustle. They're trying to make a bunch of money for me. It's just a way to get more exposure, uh, and to get more practice, um, training people. Cause I think that's really important. Um, and it's, it's nice to give back to, I mean, obviously it's not, it's not totally free, but it's something that is valuable for both parties in this case. Yeah. And is it like, is there like a program kind of devised when you have uh, when you have a student, or is it kind of like they come to you with what they want to know, or, or what, what's the yeah, kind of yeah. curriculum? I guess exactly. So so they start out uh, kind of like in the in the place of um, well, either either they they come to me directly and say, hey, you know, they don't they don't contact me contact me personally, but they contact the mentor coalition. Right. Uh, Aaron is the one that that deals with a lot of the people there and, and coordinates, but she, um, she will communicate with them and they might say, I, I love Brad's stuff. I think he would be a great mentor for me. Um, I'd like to sign up and they proceed. Or it could be that they contact the mentor coalition. They're like, Hey, I'm trying to become a better character artist. Uh, I want to learn more about, uh, heart surface and ZBrush. Is there anybody that you can recommend? Aaron might shoot out an email to all the character artists, uh, at the mentor coalition and be like is anybody wanting to help this person out and then you can sort of like offer to do that and then you may get them um but essentially like whenever like i have areas that i will uh train people up on and anybody that sort of like is in that vein it, honestly it's, it's usually most things 3d art because i've done it all at this point but um uh, I'm willing to sort of help people with almost anything in the 3D art realm specifically. Uh, now, if they wanted to do concept art or something, uh, I don't think that I would be good enough for that, uh, or at least they could probably do better than me. Um, but uh, yeah, and so so essentially they're like, if they want to learn something specific like hard surface and ZBrush, uh, I think that I probably am one of the better options there uh, personally. So um, I've actually made some uh, some tutorials, like there's like a, a YouTube, uh, where I went over that process and, and kind of like what happens is it's for me is that I, I find that I only have a limited amount of time with the students and it's really important to me that they get the most out of the program. Like, again, like I'm not just doing it for money. I'm, I'm mostly doing it to, 
to help people out and to kind of like get a little more exposure. Uh, I think that's more important than anything else. And, um, and so I'll like usually spend more time than what I probably should be uh, with, with the mentee. And I also try to think about things in the long term where I can set things up so I can be like, look, this, this kind of tutorial doesn't really exist online, but I'm going to record some stuff. And it's like two hours of me sculpting and explaining things. And, and that'll sort of answer that question. And then we can go over the specifics in the limited amount of time that we have um, on, on our talks. Because if I'm just like doing this, like rinse and repeat with every person, like they're not going to get nearly as much out of it. So I want, I want them to have a lot of time um, to ask more specific in-depth questions that, you know, areas where I can unblock them uh, is, is sort of the main thing and, and not just like teach somebody something from square one. Um, cause that takes forever. So, yeah, yeah. That sounds cool. Especially like tailoring sort of to their needs and, and being able to make every, you know, I imagine mentee feel like, you know, unique in a way. It's not just some generic stuff that you could throw at anybody. It's not a one size fits all operation. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and for me, like I said, it's, it becomes more, more time intensive than I want, but the hope is that um, eventually it's like not so time intensive because I can be like, hey, I made this thing for you actually that, that talks about just that. And then right. we can, we, then I won't be spending all that extra time. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, and sometimes honestly, it could just be literally like, hey, I'm doing something this way. Is that the right way? Like, I, I don't know. This feels really hard. Or I'd be like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's mostly the right way. It's just like there's a couple little tricks here that'll make it like slightly easier for you. And that's all they need, you know? Yeah. So. And uh, do you give, you also give advice uh, at all to people in terms of like professionally what they should be doing in terms of like portfolio and things like that? Or do people come to you with questions about that? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like I always, I always want to kind of like close the loop on that if possible. Sometimes we don't always have the time to do it, but I do think that that's really, really important. Like, um, you can really make the best model in the world. And if you just don't light and render it properly, it can look like garbage. So it's like you did all the right things artistically speaking. Uh, I mean, there is artistry to lighting and, and, and rendering. Don't get me wrong. But for the most part, like you did the hard work, uh, and, but you're still not like reaping the rewards of making something so awesome just because you're not spending time on these things or understanding how to do it. So part of that might be the training side of it. Um, but at, at the end, like you really need to know how to present your work. Um, cause if you don't, it's, it's like, you might as well have not made it almost, you know? So, uh, so that stuff is really important in terms of like helping people with portfolio, uh, letting them understand more about like how to leverage, social media or how to apply or like I have also have some people that already work in the game industry and I can just be giving them like general tips and advice about how I think that they um, might go about doing things so that they move forward in their career like more in the long term. Um, there's there's sometimes stuff like it's more like business related where it's like uh, you know the people that I know are all artists and they tend to shy away from a lot of the business stuff or they feel uncomfortable asking for a raise or, or even understanding what their value is. And so I can talk to them about that specifically because that's, a, that's a one of those areas where like people are sort of afraid to even talk about sometimes, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and having the one-on-one, -on -one, you know, experiences is, is just so much different than, you know, like trying to, trying to ask that otherwise. Yeah, well, I love that you do that because I think, you know, you're exactly right. There's so many people 
art side, programming side, whatever, almost in all areas of, of the industry that maybe are trying to break in or students or whatever, they don't know how to talk to people about these things. And they want, they might want to learn, but they just don't know how to approach it. So the fact that you can yeah. provide that information as well as the technical know-how, I think is just invaluable. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And that kind of goes back to the the thing that I was saying initially. It was like about how I just see it as, as time-saving because the way that I figured out most of this stuff is by failing over and over and over again, you know? And yeah. so I'm saving you that. So, hey, maybe I can, maybe you have this little talk with me and you get a $10,000 raise. Well, it doesn't cost right. $10,000 for this, you know, like there you go. So, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not always going to be so cut and dry, but I feel like once, once people have the tools, it's, it's so worth it, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, Brad, thanks a lot for, for talking to us today. Is there anything you want to, you want to plug on your, on your way out? Uh, we always want to give people a chance to, to promote whatever they want to promote before they uh, wrap up the interview. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I didn't have anything specifically planned, but you know, um, my name is Brad Myers. If you look up uh, Brad Myers on ArtStation, the last name is spelled M Y E R S, by the way. Sometimes people spell, spell it with an E. Um, if you look me up on ArtStation, you can see my work. Uh, if you look up the Mentor Coalition, you can find information about me there with the men, with the mentors there. Um, I have an Instagram. I think it's probably Brad M Three D. Um, is the name on that Instagram. So if, if, as long as you know my first and last name, you should be able to find me various places. Um, and, you know, if anybody ever wants to reach out for me for advice, um, I'm happy. I try to answer every email that I get. So uh, I'll be happy to do that. Well, cool, man. Brad, thanks for uh, talking to me about hair for, for an hour and a half. Appreciate it. And uh, <laughs> It's been awesome. It's, yeah. That's a lot of fun. We, I hope we can do it again sometime. Yeah, that'd be a blast. All right. Um, talk- yeah, thanks again. Yeah. Talk to you later. All right, that's going to wrap up this week's episode. We want to thank Brad again for being our guest. To find out more about Mudstack, head over to mudstack.com where you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and join our community on Discord. And of course, we want to thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Clear as Mud. Mm-hmm.